Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump into today's conversation. My guest today is Janice Kaye. For over 20 years, Janice has empowered individuals, teams, and organizations to realize their fullest potential. Janice wears several hats with her clients, that of coach, mentor, advisor, and consultant. The combination of these different approaches creates a clearer and more attainable pathway for her clients to live their purpose and realize their potential. In essence, Janice co-creates a powerful reality with her clients by having them see their own potential, envision what can be possible, take the steps necessary to get there, and once there, make the most of it. Janice's experience extends around the globe, across cultures, and across industries. She's lived and worked in international environments such as France, the UK, New York, Boston, and also working virtually with individuals and organizations around the globe. Janice is known as a thought leader in entrepreneurship, social enterprise, and startup ecosystems, as she has led roundtables, produced conferences, consulted and coached leaders in these areas for over 20 years. And she herself is also a serial entrepreneur, having co-founded seven companies. Before our conversation for the podcast, Janice and I were connected only loosely and distantly through our coaching network and LinkedIn. After I read one of her posts on LinkedIn and deeply resonated with it, I reached out asking if she'd be a guest on the podcast. Happily, she said yes. And this is one of these delightful conversations where we jump in and explore through structured emergence. One of the most powerful questions to me that came out during our conversation is this. How do we decrease the need of feeling alive out of fear and shift it to feeling alive out of love and synergy? We explore this question as well as the instincts of judgment and fear in humans, the benefits and liabilities of our fears. Janice also shares pieces of her journey to move away from fear-based judgments to building healthier and more fulfilling relationships that are grounded and centered in love and synergy. Janice, thank you so much for your time, your experience, and your wisdom. I've been reflecting on our conversation since having it and am deeply grateful for all I've learned from you and for the new perspectives I've gained. As a quick side note, there were a few small blips in my internet connection that resulted in the occasional lost syllable of a word here and there. We've cleaned this up as much as possible, so I don't believe that it will take away from the message, but I do apologize for uh, a few of those internet blips. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, and please check out the show notes if you would like to connect with Janice and learn more about her work. Janice, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Hey, Lisa, how are you? I am well, and I'm really excited about this conversation. You are one of the people that I am really, I feel like it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. I don't know you really at all. And we (laughs) connected on LinkedIn. I really resonated with one of your posts. And we kind of have that loose contact through the Georgetown Coaching Network and and whatnot. But um, I love this opportunity to sit down with people and and just say like, okay, I'm not entirely sure what we're going to talk about, but your game for it. And so thank you. Sure. My pleasure. It's amazing how many people I've met on LinkedIn from, you know, one connection removed that I've gone pretty deep with. It's, you know, I love it. That's really cool. Yeah. It's, it's definitely the positive things that we can, the value add that we can take from our social media platforms. (laughs) Yeah. So Janice, as we start out, I like to ask each of my guests a question about what this idea of making life less difficult means to them. This podcast, the name of it, the work I do comes from a quote by Marianne Evans. What do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And I would just love to hear from you. 
What comes up for you when you hear that? For me, what makes life less difficult for me and um, as a coach, as a friend, as a parent, um, for others as well, is to live in as much of an alignment with human instinct as much as humanly possible. Hmm. You know, at the end of the day, we are an animal. And when when I was young and went to, and went as a parent, bringing my child to a zoo, you would see, and I've seen animals who are not living their instinctual best lives and they're messed up. So why are we any different? So when I think of making things, making life less difficult for myself and or others, I, my lens in which to see that and to share any thoughts, um, wisdom tools that I may have is how do, how do I help myself and others be more human, human, instinctual, animal, human? Wow. I have so many questions. When, when you say human <laughs> instinct, what, what are you thinking of when you say that? So there's evolutionary biology. There's, um, you know, how we got to where we are right now as um, top of the food chain, how we are social beings and, you know, reading as much as I possibly can for me to have a better understanding of what it means to be human. Um, so, you know, regular activity, um, uh, living with a purpose, things like that. Um, so that came from Maria Jehoda, who I'm a huge fan of, a British soci uh, sociologist in the, um, during, during the depression, she wrote a number of books on um, what is missing for people when they are under and un unemployed. And those were a couple of those things, lacking regular activity, not having a common purpose, not having a, a you know, social, um, not having social engagement with other people. So I, you know, glean from a number of um, very, you know, insightful humans over the decades. And I'll just take little bits and pieces and, and live by them. So there's so much conversation right now about disconnection and I guess it's sort of, it's making me thinking, especially the social aspects, how um, humans are not necessarily living in that best fit. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And then like, like what do you do practically to stay kind of in that best fit framework for yourself? Um, so trying to be as present as possible and thinking to myself, Am I doing something in society or am I doing any action or behavior that I feel goes against human instinct? Because I could feel it. I could feel that. Like this isn't right. One, you know, raising children on your own as opposed to, you know, having a village, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It does because that's who we are as instinctual human animals. Um, and so I do the same thing with my role at work, you know, the companies in which I co-founded or now that I'm on the board of, you know, how do we stay as aligned to human instinct as possible? Because we'll just feel better. We'll feel more alive. We'll be less fearful. We will have, um, more, uh, fear reactions such as jealousy, um, as we spoke, you know, about, you know, prior to, you know, getting on this podcast, we, those are fear-based emotions that jump out, leash out and attack one another verbally that are just unnecessary. Yeah. And it hurts both, all parties. Indeed. You know, it hurts the, the person who's holding the fear and, sh and lashing out to others. And it may hurt the person who's on the receiving end. I, I would love to hear a little bit about your journey to get to this place where you are now. Has it always been, like you said, you feel it when you are not in alignment with sort of those natural human instincts. Has that been a part of your entire life? Has that been something that has been learned over time? 
definitely learned over time. Yes. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> Share your wisdom. Yes. And, it, and I learned it by reading books, um, understanding the theory, understanding human instinct, and then putting them into practice, putting these things into practice every single day. And one of those practices is my, um, I'm okay with trusting before distrusting. And so maybe that's the way I was brought up in the Midwest, because in general, people say people from the Midwest trust before they distrust. But when I moved to New York, in general, they say people in New York distrust before they trust. Well, I'm not going to judge them for that. I'm still going to be me because that's what feels okay to me. And I found that putting that into practice of trusting before, you know, you distrust, that works for me, you know, and that's, that was in my late twenties and I'm 57. So I've been practicing that for a really long time. And it's just building upon those conscious behaviors that I know help me feel alive, centered and well, and I can see in others, it helps them as well. So the question that brings up for me, and you're talking about, you know, the we're, the generalizations of Midwest U.S. culture versus, like, say, New York City. I think there's a, some other cities we could. I grew up near Philadelphia, so, you know, so. But and and I think this can extend to other cultures around the world, where some cultures are put trust forward first. Some cultures don't, right? Like, so this can extend um, beyond the U.S. So what is What's the core human instinct to trust or not to trust? Or is it, it depends. It can be either depending on our environment, our culture, our families of origin. Um, yeah. What's your thought on that? Is, is there a, an underlying core instinct when it comes to this trust? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's a learned behavior. Um, I, I wish I could remember the number of people who said this, but they said anything you learn before the ages of six, eight, or 12, that's myelinated in your neural net. Like you, that is you, that is your thinking. And it's very difficult to, um, to switch out of that thinking. So I think whatever culture, you, you know, the, you know, the nurture um, more than nature, I believe trust gets imprinted, but I'm not going to make anyone wrong. Um, or judge them based on the way they, what culture they were brought up in, or the, you know, maybe it was just their family that worked that way. I'm not going to make them wrong for that because you, you can tell when something's really deep in someone's thinking, you know, their neural net is massively myelinated. I'm not going to make them wrong for that. It was their childhood. Just because I had a different one doesn't make them any, you know, there's no reason for me to judge somebody because they have different early childhood education. Uh, and I also, as you're saying that, I mean, it's such a beautiful place that you are, Janice. And it it also seems that judging is such a normal human instinct. So how do we how do we get to this point where we don't hold it against people? Because I certainly um I mean the environment that I brought was brought up in was I, I describe it as loving and judgmental. And so, I mean, like I, I learned, I, I think I'm not sure how much is instinct here and how much is learning. I think I absolutely learned to be judgmental in my growing up and have had to work really hard to step away from that. Um, and yet, you know, again, kind of, is that human instinct or is that learned behavior? So I think there's a difference between the human instinct of formulating opinions on um, pattern finding um, and gaining information about someone's behavior so I can have an understanding of how our interaction is going to go, right? So to me, that's forming an opinion of someone's behavior. I find that very different from judging. Judging to me feels like a fear-based behavior. Understanding your patterns of behavior so I can better interact with you is more of formulating an opinion of your behavior so I could better interact. Judging is, is I have um, a fear-based stance in which I'm going, to, I'm going to take those opinions and create a negative thought habit in my mind about those opinions. It's unnecessary. 
it, it, for me, being fear-based clouds my judgment. So what's the point of it? Never understood. Creating opinions so I know better how you behave and so I can better work with you. I, I get, um, over time, I would get an understanding perhaps of you know what triggers you or what you like doing. And so we can have a better, more synergistic relationship if I can formulate opinions of your behavior by pattern finding over time. Having a judgment on them, it's the point. What is the point? Why are so why are why are we so naturally why are we so naturally drawn to judgment? Because I I agree, like there really is no point. And I love the distinction that you're making between the opinions that we form and help us formulate how best to interact with each other versus the judgment being fear-based and largely negative. But like what it what is the point? Why are we doing that so much if there's no good point to it? Well. You know, fear is an amazing emotion, right? It has kept us safe, right? If you, you know, throughout, you know, evolutionary history. So if we weren't afraid and we were traipsing through a jungle, we'd probably be eaten, right? So, you know, you look at a, you know, a chipmunk or a squirrel in your backyard and they're they're always on alert, you know, what's going to eat them? What's going to eat them? What, you know, that keeps them alive. We now live, some of us live in a society, we don't have to have that heightened fear top of mind all the time, but it's part of who we are. Through evolutionary biology, we have the amygdala, we, we get triggered. The key is how do we decrease that need of feeling alive out of fear and shift it to feeling alive out of love and synergy? Yeah. And it, it seems to me, and it, it it seems like, and I had a conversation very similar to this with a with a friend where we were talking about these fear responses, and that my brain is reacting. If I'm if I'm fearful of someone judging me, my brain is reacting the same way as if it is fearful of the tiger jumping out of the brush exactly. to attack and kill me. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but like, how do I then tell my brain, look? Being judged hurts. It sucks. I don't like it. And yet I'm not in physical harm. Like I'm going to live through it. That's right. That's right. So the, the key is to see it for what it is. It is, it has not attacked you. Those words have not physically hurt you. So you got to ask yourself, why do they still hurt you? And what is that trigger in you? Um, and to, to shift out of it, you know, you know, easier said than done. Um, it took me quite a few years to shift, you know, not to be hurt by someone else's words, but it was amazingly freeing once I got to that point. What helped you get to that point? A lot of work. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> I mean, I can, I can, I, I feel really grateful to say I can see it. I can. I can experience that pain without it sometimes without it triggering like those deep. And yet to get to where it actually doesn't hurt. I'm like, Ooh, is that actually possible? Tell me Janice. (laughs) It it is. So, you know, you're, you can shift your thinking in a moment, you know, sometimes aha moments or, or, you know, something that someone said can resonate so differently than it shifts your neural net. And sometimes it just takes, time right so i think it's different things for different people but for me that it took time and it actually took me um being disciplined about the shift i found earlier on when i was younger it was a lot easier to just be judgmental it just it was just easy you know because it's something i that was that i learned growing up um and you know any neuro net that's myelinated is just easier, right? You know, you learn your ABCs. It's really difficult in the beginning. And finally, you know, it gets myelinated enough. It's like, it doesn't take a whole lot of energy for me to say my ABCs. It takes energy to shift a thought habit. So you got to be disciplined and just and get through it and do it over and over and over again. Your ABCs, it's muscle memory. Yeah. Just in the beginning, you, you just got to be disciplined about it. 
and you get into these little circles where other people are judging and you want to belong and you just got to say, no, no, not going to, I'm not going to do it. I don't need to be against them. They're in charge of their own psyche. Um, I don't need to judge them for judging. <laughs> yeah. Next level. But I don't right? need to play along to belong. Mm. So it's staying disciplined to the point where you feel freedom because the neural net is shifted. And that is a great moment. Yeah. Where it's not work anymore. It doesn't take calories to, to think that way because mm-hmm. a new neural net was built. And then, and it's like, great. And myelinating that over time, then that's easier and easier and easier. But it's a discipline up front. Yeah. No, and I like that perspective because it, um, I mean, I'll, I'll just use the word skill, right? Like that's what comes up for me. This mm-hmm. is a skill that we can develop the same as, okay, I'm going to go out and take tennis lessons. And the first time on the court, I don't even know how to hold the racket. And, you know, exactly. I get feedback. Oh, your hand is doing this. I'm like, it is like, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. But then over time I'm able to be more aware and then correct and adjust, but, but it does. I mean, if I want to get good at tennis, I do need to discipline myself and just push through the difficulty and I'm going to get out there on the court and I'm just going to be a terrible tennis player for a while. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's okay because I'm going towards something, right? That's right. And self and judging self. So self-judgment is as negative. Mm. Sure. You attest to as judging others still still that fear-based, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not talented enough at tennis. It's it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think I'd love to um, kind of bridge this into the the post that you put on LinkedIn that Mm -hmm. prompted me to reach out in talking about belittling and that core of insecurity. And and I'd even say a core of self judgment Mm, that then overflows into judging and being critical and belittling others. Um, Mm. So, I mean, jump in on this topic where it makes sense, um, because I think this is incredibly practical and, and powerful for so many of us. One of the things that's on my to-do list, which I have not done yet, is to find out how the word belittling came to be, Hmm. you know, because it's being little, belittling. So to me, this could be totally wrong. To me, it sounds like the person actually doing the belittling is the one who feels little, is the one who feels less than. The other person, the receiver, has a choice, Right. They have a choice on how to receive that. So if you're, um, this is probably not the most PC thing to say, but if someone has Tourette's, right? And is is swearing at you, but you don't know they have it. You may be triggered, right? Once you find out they have it, you're not triggered anymore. You You know, it doesn't have anything to do with you, right? Belittling is the same. It's with the other. You don't have to have Tourette's. You know, you just need to have that realization that if someone is belittling someone else, they feel less than because that fear is coming from them. And people who belittle over time, it's a strategy that they find works to make them feel better to put someone else down. And it's so destructive. And I see it at senior levels in organizations, government, private, like across the board. And it it's so destructive and unnecessary. If part of early childhood curriculum made it super clear when we were really young that if someone puts someone else down, they're doing so to make themselves feel better. And if our then conditioned reaction to that would be of empathy, it could probably go away in a generation. Because you'd see somebody like a little kid who, who, you know, who falls on the ground and hurts their knee. You're not going to be fearful of that. You're like, oh my gosh, like, it's like empathy. I'm like, oh, you, do you want a hug? You know, you're obviously feeling bad. If that conditioned behavior of when, of a generation of children saw belittling as that, 
where if someone else was belittling anybody else, name calling, you know, there are a number of different behaviors under belittling, um, they would receive empathy. It just, it, it wouldn't exist because they're not going to feel better. They're just going to, and they might feel better because they're getting empathy, but they're not going to feel better because they're putting someone else down to make themselves feel better. They might feel better because they're getting empathy. Mm-hmm. That's a nice shift I'd like to see in society. You and me both. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Who's in charge of early childhood education <laughs> on the planet? Let's, let's talk to them. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I, I think too, um, I'm curious of what your thoughts are on kind of really practical, tangible ways that this can show up. I'm thinking of things like micromanaging Hmm. that in a way, I mean, it's kind of a little bit, I mean, it's different than an overt belittling statement, but, but in a way, I mean, what do you think about that? Like it, yeah, because again, like these issues in leadership and organizations, micromanaging means if I have to micromanage you, the rest, of, I'm not secure enough. I am, and in a way, it is kind of belittling others' ability to be like, you can't do this without me telling you exactly how to do it. That's right. Yeah, I don't think this is proper ICF, but I love when I coach both the. Um, the person and the the manager, so the employee and the manager, because especially when there's a lot of judgment and things like that, there, there's a big fear base going on because neither of them want to be in that position. Neither of them want to feel that way. Neither of them want to have that fear base, but they're doing so unconsciously. And so, most of the time, unconsciously, they're like, well, I need, you know, I need to manage this person because, you know, they never fulfill in their deadlines. Well, you know, how are you sharing that information? Oh, in a belittling, you know, oh, in a belittling manner. They don't say that, but after coaching, they they become aware of it. Like, oh, no wonder that person feels insecure and is not meeting their deadlines because they never feel like it's good enough. So they're always doing things, you know, 10 times over before they even send it to me. Oh, well, that's a silly cycle, you know. So I really like coaching both ends of a conflict mm. separately because mm. you can hear what one is saying and you can have an effect on either side. Yeah. No. And it's almost a sense of, um, it's almost a sense of translating. Mm, It's exactly right. Behavior and understanding. I mean, I think back to what you were saying about early childhood education, if, you know, kids learn that somebody puts them down, that that's actually coming from a place of insecurity and not feeling good about themselves that children are learning to be translators of behavior in a way that's more effective than just taking it at face value. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, when we coach or when we go into an organization and we coach the team um, and, and multiple teams, so it creates an organizational change, we do it with a single focus area. So say it's decision-making or say it's um, making a clear request. So, our clients learn about soft asks and hedging that then permeates the organization so they can start um, being translators for one another in all meetings. But you can't do it with every single behavior organization at once. You get a focus area. So they get some points on the board, get some behaviors and translation handled, and then go to the next one, right? And then have that be part of onboarding. So when the news person comes in, they're not, they don't come into a culture that they're trying to learn by osmosis. Like soft ask. Why does everyone talk about soft ask? Isn't that a nice thing? No, it just means you're not having a clear request. You know, can you maybe get this done by this? Would it be okay? That's not helpful, right? Just because it's soft, it's not kind. Being kind is being clear. So there's nothing lost in translation. And so that happens you, in all behaviors. Yeah. Would you dig into that just a little bit more practically? Yeah. Because I feel like this can be applicable both in our professional and our personal lives, the soft <laughs> ask and learning to be clear and direct. And, 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 and I know for myself, I had no idea that I was using this sort of indirect soft ask approach for decades of my life. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'd love it if you would. Um, just dissect that a little bit and share. Sure. Um, so I'm the 
co-founder of Corentis. We're a team effectiveness, team transformation organization, and we have umpteen tools. Um, and, and those tools have been formulated over time based on theory, but based on our interaction with clients that, that we have found are very sticky over time. So when we coach, consult, advise, and train leaders, teams, and organizations, we talk about a clear request and the importance of a clear request and what can get in the way of a clear request. And that is a soft ask. So even if it's just something so tiny of shifting an organization, of stopping soft asks, that's a huge win. I'm trying to do everything at once, but just shifting out of soft asks. So clients we've been to, we go there years later, they still utilize the term soft asks and they call it out to one another. They're that translator. Oh, that was a soft, oh my God, funny. So it's not a judgment, right? You help them take on that language to call one another out and call themselves on it. I had a client um, in a team who, who you know, catches, her, catches herself. She's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just you know, did a soft ask. Let me restate that into a clear request. Um, little things like that, that really get into the culture, into the psyche to remyelinate or to create a new thought habit and myelinate it um, is key and important. And it's just those little, little things over time that make a huge difference. So what's an example practically of a soft ask? And then can you contrast that with a clear direct ask? Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, um, a soft ask, you know, Lisa, I was wondering, you know, would it be, would it be too much trouble? Can, could I get at some point in time, the edited version of this, so I can look at it before you, before you post it, you know, would, would you mind, would that be okay? Um, you know, some point in time in the next couple of weeks, um, I'm going to be in and out, but would, would, would you mind doing that? I would be happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I <now's>, think... <laughs> So now, so now let's say that someone in my organization on the marketing side needs to see it, like has to have it, right? Before anything can go public. That's not the case. But just let's just say someone else's job is it to look at the edited version prior to it launching. And there are a lot of public organizations that need to have this happen, mm-hmm. right? So if I'm doing a soft ask and you and you answer, sure. I could give that to you. My marketing person now comes to me and says, oh, when am I going to receive that? Oh, at some point in time. Oh, well, you know, what did Lisa say? Like, yeah, she, she'd do it. Okay. So, you know what I mean? So there's yeah. nothing clear about it. Nothing. So, you know, a, a clear request, um, you know, is what we call tasty. I want to go into these tools right now, but <laughs> I love this one. This is like one of my favorites. So it's targeted. It's to you. It's clear it's to you because I'm talking to you. But say there's five other people in the room. Like, can somebody do this? Targeted, right? It's actionable. Okay. It's clear what the action is. You know, it's specific. I need the, you know, the edited version, T-A-S, T. It's timely by a certain date. And it's a request. So you could... Why? Yes, no, or renegotiate. Well, I can't get it to you by then, but I got to check with my producer. I could probably get it to you by next week, Thursday. Is that okay? Yes, that'd be great. So we have this little tasty way of making a clear request that just makes it just a lot easier, a lot clearer without the soft. And now my marketing person isn't going to be mad at me. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And everything runs more effectively when we have that like direct communication and we know what the expectations are. I know what the expectation is of me. If something comes up and I'm not able to meet it, then I can let you know clearly, or we need to adjust, but things just operate more effectively. And sharing that why. So I could just tell you, I need it. You might be thinking, does she not like my work or like, is she just, you know, checking on me? Like, no, actually our policy in our company is that my, my head of marketing needs to just see it before it goes public. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That's not the case at current. But just <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's so it's so helpful, Janice. Thank you very much for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And and I I just see so many applications 
right? And again, professional settings, also personal settings. And I think it it might even be easier to forget using these sorts of skillful communication techniques at home where we just kind of let our hair down and we think people know us and should it be our peer partners should be able to read our minds. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I really liked, you know, it'd be great if the garbage was taken out as, as you know, my kids and my husband look around going, yeah, it'd, yeah, it'd be great. It would be lovely. It'd be lovely. <laughs> not targeted, not clear, not, to, you know, there's no time out. No negotiation with anybody because no one thinks it's actually being asked to them specifically. Yeah. Gosh, we're out of milk again. Unhelpful. Super unhelpful. <laughs> Super unhelpful. And and yet, I mean, I, I just think about, um, you know, growing up and what was modeled. And again, I feel That's like right. I mean, not, not from a malicious way, not from a, like, I, I grew up in a loving family and yet um, direct requests were right. not modeled at all. I remember so distinctly as a kid, I'd go to my mom, mom, can I, you know, go over to my friend's house tomorrow after school? And she'd say, well, go ask your dad. And okay, <laughs> go find dad. Dad, can I get, well, what's your mother say? Like, um, yeah, just give me a yes or a no. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I remember as a, as a kid and, and yet like, this is what I absorbed and, you know, the indirect communication and no, you know, like clear decision-making and I, um, it, it overflows into other areas of my life and, um, going back to that discipline and work to learn new communication habits and tools. Did I mention early childhood education? See, all of these, (laughs) these great coaching tools were brought into, you know, kindergarten through um, you know, throughout all elementary school, high school, just repeated over time, age, you know, age appropriate, getting deeper and deeper, very similar to how we bring it into organizations, really simply, then you start getting more nuanced, right? So I mentioned, you know, that, you know, tasty, clear request, but there's also conveying the why, you know, what is the mm. why behind my request? Oh, our marketing person, you know, so, you know, you, you start embedding these better, um, habits, better thought habits, better, you know, better feelings that are, that come out of those better actions and better results. I would love to, so, so what we're talking about really makes me think about communication skills and the importance. And there are times where I just, I feel so strongly, like if, if we could, like what, what, what makes people truly successful in this life is like black belt level communication skills. <laughs> Six Sigma. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it impacts, I mean, it just impacts our life in, in all directions. Right. And yeah. again, both personally, professionally, um, and, and it's really hard work. So how it, it's difficult, right? So, so let's bring it back to the theme of making life less difficult and, and, yeah. and, I feel very passionate about particularly the things in life that are difficult, right? It's like, we cannot necessarily make this easy just because, you know, your organization comes in and works and teaches, you know, tasty and soft acid doesn't necessarily make it easy. It's, it can be a difficult process. It can be a difficult process to create new neural pathways and get them myelinated and and running smoothly. And, and yet, I mean, I guess the question I want to ask is like, what, what can make it less difficult? What can make the process less difficult is if everyone initially embraces the change. They can see the end result. I want to get there, right? Um, Start with the end in mind, right? So if you could see that, if you could see the light at the end of the tunnel, going through the tunnel can still be as hard and as painful um, and as draining as it would without seeing it, but at least there's, there's hope. There's a, there's a vision for, for the light, right. And knowing that's there, um, and, and not having the tunnel so long, like one of the things that that we do is make sure that, you know, there's some really short tunnels to make some, you know, to, to make some really quick, easier changes, um, 
for instance, the tasty and the soft asks and people understanding hedging and things like that, that actually goes pretty quickly. It, it, you know, those are really short, you know, um, super easy to understand tools that you can learn in a, learn in a minute. Mm-hmm. And then you got to be disciplined about practicing it over time. Right. Yeah. So the key is when you're in meetings, everyone's got each other's back. And we all make an agreement. Hey, we're going to call each other out on clear requests. You know, who's making a clear request? High five. Awesome. Who's doing the soft asks and who's doing the hedging? Yeah, we're going to call them out. But we all give each other permission to do so over and over again. And just, you know, it doesn't take very long in your team. Or it just goes away. You know, and then you can have the room for the harder stuff. Yeah. Right. The longer tunnels that it takes to get through. Um, because not everything is, is, is that easy, right? There's some things that are harder, but it's great when you can get rid of, you know, some of the, the, the mess that the easy stuff, you know, that you can get through the easy, get rid of that. You know, if we can make clear requests, maybe we can, you know, get to creating a really compelling, you know, strategy, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And I love the vision of the tunnel and knowing what's on the other side of the tunnel. And knowing it is, it's clear what's on the other side of the tunnel and it's clear why it's important to me. It's clear it's why it's important to the team or the organization. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I love also that idea of, okay, let, let's make some tunnels short at the start. Like give us some, some courage, like give us some wins, right? That's right. Um, it's wins you know, on the board. Right. I don't want my tennis instructor to use all of his or her skill against me when I'm first <laughs> Right, right. (laughs) Like go easy on me a little bit. Like sort of, I want some short tunnels, but then work up to longer ones. I really love that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a perfect example. You know, your tennis instructor is not going to have you start on a more you know advanced level skill. Let's just hit the ball. Try to get the ball over the net. Ball into rack, racket. That's kind of where I am right now, and I should be a lot better with how how often I played tennis when I was younger. (laughs) Terrible at it. Self-compassion, right? No judgment. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, Just not my skill set. Yeah. <laughs> that hand-eye coordination, <laughs> physical sport, talent ability sort of missed me. Oh man. We all have our different strengths, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um I I also, you know, what you say about getting everybody on board at the beginning, making it making it less difficult from that perspective. Um the question that comes up for me, and I have a specific um, example in mind with um, a, a client of mine, where they're in a pretty toxic work environment. Um, what are, what are your recommendations for making it less difficult if someone is unfortunately in a position where not everybody's going to get on the same page? There's going to be you. You might be kind of one person trying to improve your own communication skills in the midst of um, an environment that may not be on the same page or supportive. Yeah. Um, so my, my first reaction to you saying that is, is to, is to make sure that you don't label things in a, in extreme, with extreme languaging to make it seem like it's a longer tunnel than it is. So for instance, the word toxic, Yeah, toxic is an extreme, something's toxic. That's, that's really bad, you know, in terms of it being, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not just, you know, kind of bad. It's not just, you know, interfering with our communications. It's not just, oh, a triggering, you know, thing that I just, you know, walk away and I just feel uncomfortable. It's toxic. Those ex- extreme languaging really doesn't help. I've been labeled toxic before, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, that, you know, Janice is so toxic. I'm like, what the heck? Like, really? You know, it's, you know, because I I loved innovating and I need to, you know, you can't innovate all the time. You know, sometimes you just gotta like (laughs) stop, right? So, you know, I I created six companies. I'm really great at innovating and coming up with, you know, great ideas. But at the point in time, um, an innovator needs to hold back and allow the company to integrate. Mm-hmm. And because not everyone's an innovator, not everyone wants that. Like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? What about this? We don't need to make a decision on that about it. So there's conversation and there's decision, right? 
a lot of people think conversation is is decision making. Mm. No, it's just like, what if? What do you think about this? 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 You don't have to make any decision on it. You know, maybe that's something we do in twenty twenty six. Hey, let's just have a conversation about it. Not everyone likes that mode, right? Yeah. So that's not toxic behavior, right? I find I don't even know what toxic behavior would be, except hitting somebody, right? Mm. Or poisoning somebody. Like literally, that would probably be toxic behavior. Right. So it it's dysfunctional behavior. Even that might be too extreme. But extreme language has been something that I've been um seeing a lot more lately um, because of the 24-hour cable news cycle, right? Where everything is like crazy bad all the time. Um, and got a lot of traffic going on in my house. Um, you know, just looking at that, you know, at, at movies and, and what's hitting us from a cultural standpoint is extreme language. Yeah. And we makes us feel alive. And at the end of the day, it could be just a Tuesday and it could be just a regular night. Does it have to be the best night ever or this is the worst thing ever? Mm-hmm. Eh, probably wasn't. That level setting is extremely helpful. Extremely. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Me using extreme words. <laughs> it's helpful. The level setting is helpful not to use extreme words, just to be able to know that you could get through it, to see it without it being so extreme. But together, we can actually figure this out, right? I would start there. <laughs> it's it's a fantastic reframe, and I I've no you know, and I'm I'm using the term toxic without even being aware because it has sort of become a buzz phrase: toxic workplace, toxic bosses. You can Google, yeah. you can find all these articles, and so I really appreciate you sharing that perspective because I think that it is you're right, right? Like, even if it is extremely dysfunctional, it goes back to a, a, a boss who is extremely difficult. I'll use extreme here. Very very difficult. Um, you know, again, it's not the tiger coming out. That's truly threatening my life. It's not being poisoned where I have to worry about the toxicity of something. Right. Um, and so it is interesting and curious that we have brought this extreme, extremely negative uh, language and descriptor into the workplace, and and does create this sense of the tunnel is huge and long and dark and miserable, right. and maybe even just a dead end cave into the ground. Right? It's not even a tunnel. Exactly. Right? If, if it's toxic, like we're just going in and we're going to die there. Right? Like that sounds horrible. Yeah. yeah. And people who who are. Um, in a place where they're feeling more vulnerable, can take that language and bring that um, negative fear base deeper into their heart and soul, which is can be really damaging. So some of that language actually resonates with people who are more permeable to that, who can't consciously see it and separate themselves for it. And therefore they take it in with, um, with much more magnitude. And so what might be a, uh, a mistake of me using a, a, the wrong pronoun with somebody can, um, can impact somebody with, with much more um, gravity um, and, and hurt them more with zero intention yeah. or not the extreme intention that someone played it out to be. Yeah. It kind of goes back to that early childhood education and um, in essence, you know, kind of having compassion and grace for other people and recognizing the, the wounds of everybody. Like we, we all have different wounds um, and, and recognizing um recognizing that I, I know in, in for myself in my own journey of learning about my own wounds or negative beliefs from from a relatively loving childhood I still have these you know like negative beliefs and I yeah. can see how they trigger different reactions in me and learning you know how to manage that and not get carried away with it it has opened doors for me to see others really strong reactions and 
think about them with compassion. I, I wonder what 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 belief they're reacting out of, right? Um, that is quite negative and difficult versus just being judgmental towards them, right? Exactly. Exactly. And this in these new cultural um, um, or being enculturated with these new extreme words just makes it more difficult for everybody, right? Yeah. And that might not be something people held or were uh, or were enculturated when they were a child, but going into organization where toxic buzzword, right? Were 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 you know some people are really permeable. And some people really, we all love belonging. It's a human instinct to belong. Mm-hmm. That we pick those up probably the first week of our employee. Because we want to belong to that culture. We hear it's a buzzword. So we start utilizing it. So Janice, as we, as we move to wrap up our conversation today, I want to come back to this idea of human instinct. And, you know, the question that, is floating around for me is how do we get to a place where the compassion for one another, the understanding rather than judgment do become human instincts? Is this, is it possible? Is it doable? Is it just optimistic? (laughs) It's it's definitely doable, but it's, it's work. Right. There's no there's no magic wand for it. Right. The the neural net was created. It was myelinated, depending on how much what's going on, nature, nurture, society, et cetera, over time. Um, shifting into a, a new neural net is, is is energy. Right. We have to expend energy. It has to be done over and over. That's how the thing got myelinated in the first place. Over and over and over and over again. It's like, you know, you pick up a bad practice um, or bad habit in playing tennis. It takes so much to undo that Mm -hmm. as opposed to learning how to hit it right in the first way, right? Mm -hmm. It's no different than communication habits. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I'm trying to remember which sport. I picked up a number of sports over my life as an adult. And I remember in instructors asking, you know, my experience. And when I come in with no little to no experience, they have been grateful because they're like, okay, good. You're not going to have bad habits. I need to change. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I first learned how to shoot a basketball with, with a basket between my legs and up like that. <laughs> Yeah, probably not the best way if you actually want to that's not how you do anything that's good. That's not how you do it. Probably not the best habit on the planet. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and it also um takes us back to the earlyhood, early childhood education. Um, because again, I mean I think about my upbringing from a good intention, loving set of parents that really um I look around at some of the life skills and the communication and the, you know, the, the natural inclinations that I've ended up with. And I'm like, Oh, it's actually not that helpful. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and, and recently, relatively recently there, um, there've been some amazing people out there who, who have studied and written a number of books on the neuroscience of learning. Mm-hmm. So our educational system needs to change because I've read a few of those books and basically they said, we're doing all this wrong and we're doing all this wrong and we're doing all this wrong. We're like, oh my gosh. So you need emotion to embed any learning for recall. So why do we have educational systems that can be void of emotion? That's not how our brain works. Now I get it. When, you know, when, traditional education was created, um, uh, institutionalized education was created. They didn't have the science of understanding the neuroscience of learning. We do now. So without judgment, but opinion, I would love to see people in institutional educational systems align 
the way in which they educate to the neuroscience of learning, how people learn. Yeah. I don't understand why that's not happening. Yes. Let's have these, on. these aren't new books. This isn't, I mean, these are, I'm a lay person reading these books. Yeah. You know, they're not difficult to get through. You know, one's called How We Learn. Um, I wish you could remember the, uh, the author, but it's the name of the book, How We Learn. Put it in the show notes. And it, it is a lay person's book. It is not difficult reading. A lot of stories mm. in that book. And a lot of very easy to understand concepts and things to put into practice make environments better for learning. Mm. Because all learning is, is information in they can utilize at another time. It's not just regurgitate on the test and then see ya. Yeah. You've got to utilize it in an applied fashion some other point in time in your life. Otherwise, mm. what a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's tricky to find the balance of feeling overwhelmed by all of the things that are not happening well. <laughs> and um and and the practical things that we we each as individuals can do, which hopefully yeah. will contribute to larger systemic change. Um and I'm curious just as we wrap up, if there's if there's somebody listening and they just kind of okay. I get it. I see it. What's kind of the first step? What's kind of one small tunnel that I can work on? What would you recommend? Don't try to work on everything at once. Just find one tunnel. It's exactly right. Just find one little thing and just be disciplined about it. You know, needing to change the planet, needing to change the way you think, what your all your triggers, let's just get rid of all of them at once. No. What one little thing do you want to work on? And then once that thing frees up, it's such a great feeling. Then just move on to the next, you know, like little bits and try to find if, if this is, you know, your, your first time really um, being disciplined about changing a thought habit, find, find an easy one, mm. find a short tunnel, be super disciplined about it, and then congratulate your achievement. And then it, and it'll still rear its ugly head. And then, but it'll be so much easier to just go, oh my gosh, that was an old thought habit I had like two years ago. I'm done with that. Not necessary. And you start catching yourself in it um, with, with less frequency because you're doing it. Yeah. It's amazing. That gives you such freedom. It's like mm. taking off things that just are unnecessary. Yeah. They keep us feeling love and truly alive as instinctual humans. Mm. I love it. I feel lighter, even just hearing you describe it. <laughs> Your stuff, just take stuff off. Yes, yes. One of the things I would love to take take off right now is all this poison ivy that I managed to get myself oh, into my this past week. That I would, hope. I'd, love, I'd be very free <laughs> if I could get rid of that. <laughs> I hope that you get through that tunnel very, very quickly. There are some tunnels that uh, are difficult to shorten, right? <laughs> I know. I've been trying. Oh, my. Janice, thank you so much for sharing. My pleasure. Um, there's just so much wisdom in what you have shared. And um, I feel inspired and energized to be like, okay, what's the next tunnel? What's the next thank thing you. for myself? Just small. Um, go for it, be disciplined. And do it with others too, if you can, mm. right? Do it, you know, with a, with a colleague, with a friend, with a family member, because sometimes it's easier to have somebody on the outside, you know, doing a nice little reminder. But that was judgment. Mm. Really? Shoot. You know, mm-hmm. and have being okay to, one would say coach one another, but to give permission for that one little tunnel that you both want to go through. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And I'll just, I'll share this briefly because I'm in the midst of a family reunion right now and my sisters yeah. and I are together and um, we, we each have struggled with guilt a lot. <laughs> and we're to the point, I noticed it the other day where I, I kind of snapped at my sister uh, the other evening and then I woke up thinking about it. I was like, oh, I shouldn't have snapped at her. And then in the morning, I said, oh, I felt guilty. I didn't mean to snap at you. And then, and then she's like, no, it's fine. I was feeling guilty about this. And, you know, even just the, the act of sharing when we feel the guilt 
you know, it's not like the guilt goes away, but just that little act of collectively, I'm like, I'm really proud of us for getting to this point where we can name it and say it rather than starting to act all weird around each other and nobody actually knows why. But um, yeah, so I like that doing it together. And then take it to the next step. Hey, you know, you know, hey, sister, you know, what do you think if we get together, we can have, you know, we can, we can help one another get rid of the baggage of guilty feelings. Can you call it out on me when you hear it in my voice? Would it be okay if, if I called it out on you when I hear it in your voice? Can we have that packed together? Yeah, I like it. Thank you so much. Sure. I look, I love your podcasts. Um, and I look forward to this being launched as well. Just let me know when, it, when it's up so I can circle it around. 